murder lovers my name is Mackenzie. this is patina and you're listening to stranger danger a true crime podcast welcome back <laughs> you just can't help yourself i can't sometimes it's like oh it's, there's so much pressure in saying my name <laughs> how do i do this you know i have an ongoing list of different names that i'm called at work or just how bad people get my name oh my gosh and just on friday someone called me pacina and i was like What's a new one? Wow. Like the female Pacino? How, how did you get there? I have no idea. You should just call yourself Al Pacino there. now. Al Pacino. Al Pacino. Um, I used to have uh, somebody that worked for me that called me Summer. And despite me telling her multiple times that that was neither my first nor my last name, right. she continued to just call me Summer. Okay. I literally said to her, that's not my name. Yep. Like, you know that, right? <laughs> just just still, to be clear. Still kept that's doing it. not my name. Drives me freaking bonkers. At least once a week I get called Summer. And oh now it, gosh. like, makes my boss mad. It's just, just like, calling people out about it. <laughs> it's not Summer. So I'm just going to go ahead and get started on this one because this case, I think I was telling you before we got started, it spans a long time, about 35, 40 years and it is so twisty and turny mm-hmm. that I'm having a hard time um, keeping in my head all the facts straight, but I'm going to try and do my best at it. So I don't know how you do just like from memory. I try to. This one, I had to write down a lot of stuff just because there's so many important pieces of it that the story or the case itself wouldn't make sense without all the pieces so I had to write all this down and but yeah I try to do the most of it from memory but so this case is commonly referred to by two different names it depends on who's reporting it who's talking about it so you're either going to hear the case of Sharon Marshall or the case of Frank Delano Marshall okay Okay, or Frank Delano Floyd. And I'll get into it in just a minute about why these names, or for him, the last names might differ. He has um, a couple different AKAs, so. A couple different identities. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm going to get started with Sharon Marshall, 1989. This starts off in Florida, of all places. So at this time, Sharon Marshall and Frank Delano Marshall are living in Florida. They she has a kid um, in 1988 uh, named Michael. So all three of them are living in Florida and as a family. Yes, as a family. Married. No. Okay. So So they just happen to have the same last name. Sorry, I have so many questions. I know. Probably jumping. I know. But and it's not. And and I I'll try to answer this as I go through it, but. The confusion of why they have the same last names is definitely part of the story, though. Okay. So you're on the right track on that. So okay. to make ends meet, um, Sharon worked as a stripper. She worked at a strip club where she had a friend named Cheryl Ann Comesso. And they would often hang out together. But also at the same time, Cheryl noticed that Sharon was coming to work with a lot of bruises. And she often, when she talked about uh, Frank, she would have to give all the money that she made to Frank. And she also made her aware that she was on welfare to make ends meet. And this was to get not only the financial benefits 
for food benefits, but also medical care because Michael, the baby, needed some medical attention at the time. So Cheryl wanted her to get out of the situation. She suggested to her, like, hey, you should get out of the situation. Frank is no good for you. He's obviously abusing you and all these things. Even though that was happening, they were still good friends. And Frank did have a boat. They took the boat out one day, the three of them. And because Cheryl obviously had ambition to try and do something else with her life other than just being a stripper, Frank convinced her that he had connections with people at Playboy and that he had connections with people in that type of industry. So while they were out on this boat ride, he convinced her to let him photograph her in provocative poses and almost naked mm. to sh- so that he could pass this on to the quote-unquote playboy people and Cheryl wasn't having any of this she was like absolutely not when he was trying to force her like physically force her um apparently at one point he almost choked her she this girl literally jumped off the boat and swam in a quarter mile into the beach and went home good for her she was like no you're not going to do this to me and he was like trying to choke her so yeah. absolutely not. she was like get bent see you later so she was so mad not only as a friend but as a person that literally just got physically assaulted but as a friend with sharon that sharon wasn't listening to her advice to leave frank and to like mm-hmm. get a better life or do better in her life and all these things um cheryl sorry they're confusing with cheryl and sharon but yeah cheryl um her friend reported her actual income to the welfare company or the welfare department and said, hey, she's been lying about what she really gets. She really gets about $1,500 a week. So she shouldn't, she doesn't qualify for welfare benefits. $1,500 a week. That's, that's solid. Yeah. What year is that? Yeah. This is 1989. That's that's good money in today's money. (laughs) Good. Yeah. She's doing good as a stripper. Um, but so she went in and reported her just out of like, I'm so mad at you. I'm going to go report yeah. this. And the welf- uh, welfare, obviously, with this new information, they immediately cut off all benefits, food, income, financial assistance, and medical, which is what they really wanted for the kid. And because this report was happening and they cut off the benefits, Frank got pissed. Yeah. Frank was beyond pissed so one of these nights he confronted cheryl in front of the strip club that both her and sharon worked at and according to witnesses there he even punched cheryl in the face as as they were fighting so this grown-ass man after this blow up after this fight happened he decided to pick up sharon and michael the kid leave their house they asked a neighbor to collect the mail that was coming in. They literally burnt down the house um, and moved and moved out of town. He then called the neighbor about a week later and asked him to also burn the mail that had come in for them. So they suspiciously, suspiciously just up and left. But then, unfortunately, Cheryl was never seen again. She was then a missing person. So they have a burnt down house. Mm-hmm. And a missing person. And a missing person. Where could she be? So, right. <laughs> so when they moved, they left the state. They went to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this is where... 
They be- Every time somebody says Tulsa, Oklahoma, I think of Chandler and friends going, the Sooner State. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they went to the Sooner State. When they moved to Oklahoma, they assumed different identities. At this point, Frank started going by Clarence Marcus Hughes. Clarence. Completely different name. It's a terrible name. And Sharon started going by Tanya Don Hughes. Okay, so and they also had this little kid Michael with them. She started stripping again. That's what she knew what to knew how to do, and it made good money. And um, but she also had a friend there that started noticing the same pattern. She would come in with bruises, and she right. was. Um, she didn't. She didn't want to be a dancer. That's I don't the think big, she wanted right? to be a dancer. Right. Okay. Um, she. Um, her in between dances and whatnot. She was an avid reader. Mm-hmm. And so this was not your usual crowd at a strip club. You yeah. know, she was uh, a more timid type of person. And she also encouraged her to do the same thing. Like, hey, you should be leaving this guy. You should be leaving Clarence. You shouldn't be with him. And while she was working there and working at the strip club, um, Clarence joined the Fraternal Order of the Police, which is really odd. He was never a police officer had nothing to do with the police i don't know exactly how he got in or to what extent you have to be involved before you're allowed in but him having these connections with the police department with police officers is one of the reasons why she didn't leave sooner Mm -hmm. and was afraid to leave because he kept threatening her that if he were to leave her that she were to leave him that he would have friends help find her okay so while she, while they're working there in April of 1990, she had had enough. She had met a young college student named Kevin Brown. She decided she was going to run away with him and take Michael, the baby, with her. Unfortunately, that same April timeline, while three passerbys were on a highway, they noticed some shoes on the highway. They noticed belongings strewn right in the on the side on the shoulder they pulled over and they realized there was a hurt woman on the side of the highway they immediately rushed her to the hospital it was tanya she had been hit with a vehicle from behind there was injuries to the back of her legs her buttocks her back and clarence's alibi at this time was that he was in the motel that they were staying at sleeping. That he had no idea that she hadn't returned. She had previously left the night before to go get milk and and food from a convenience store. And he also attributed to him not noticing that she was gone because he said that she would often turn tricks. So that if she got busy or turned a trick, that she wouldn't come home and it was just normal for her. So he said that she was also a sex worker at right. this point. Exactly. Was she? No. No. That's kind of a big jump. Yeah. Okay. So although she's in critical condition, she is stable. Her friends from the strip club start coming to visit her. And immediately when he finds out that she's in the hospital from this hit and run, he goes and visits and asks the nurses for a piece of paper and a pen. And the first thing that he does is crudely puts a note together that says no visitors and tapes it on the door. So he doesn't want anyone but him and the doctors to come in 
and see Tanya for reasons unknown, other than we can assume they don't want, he doesn't want people to either like help her in recovery or just like see if she remembers anything. That's what I'm thinking about Mm. the hit and run. Her friends still came in and visited her while she was in recovery. And, you know, they were even, she was stable. She started nodding her head. She started squeezing her hand. She was reacting to them being there. Um, But then after he put the, the no visitor sign, five days later, she passed away. The doctor that was in charge of her case at the hospital quickly realized that the injuries that were to the back of her head were not consistent with that of being hit with a vehicle. And she had different bruises on her body that were from different stages, different times that were at different healing points. So he ultimately ruled her death as a homicide. Okay. He did not let it go by as a hit and run or an accidental death type of thing. Okay. Um, piece of shit Clarence didn't even want to pay for a proper burial or a headstone. So her co-workers all this, uh, from the strip club pulled her money together and bought her a headstone and all her name, um, all the headstone reads is her year of birth, her year of passing and Tanya, no last name, anything like that. So one of her friends from the strip club did some digging and found out that her maiden name was possibly Tadlock. So Tanya Tadlock. She but it's con- not actually Tanya. So she contacted a woman who was presumably the mother of Tanya Tadlock to unfortunately give her this news like, hey, your daughter, we're in Oklahoma. This happened. She passed away. And the lady was like, my daughter passed away when she was 18 months old, 20 years ago. Oh, God. You have the wrong Tanya Tadlock. This is not her. Yeah. So at that point, we still have Michael, two years old at this time. So at this time, Clarence asks the state to allow him to put Michael into foster care for about a week, which I didn't know you could check in and check out like that. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. Right. (laughs) So... This was 1990. I don't know if the... Is this like a daycare service? To him, it was, apparently. So what he did was in in 1990, he... Excuse me. He asked the state to put him into foster care, and he immediately left the state. The foster parents that took in Michael were Merle and Ernest Bean. They immediately reported that although he was two years old, he had the mental capacity of a nine-month-old, he was nonverbal. All he would do is like sit in corners, shake, and hysterically shout. He had little to no muscle control. So he, he was not, no, anything. he was not progressing well at that stage. And he was there for four, for four years total. At that point, he had made so much progress that Merle and Ernest Bean decided, we're going to start the adoption process. We're going to take this kid in. He's doing so good now that he has a healthy environment that he's growing up in and whatnot. So six months after, just a little bit of rewind. Surprise, surprise. Frank slash Clarence never comes back for him. Well, six months after. Not a week later, at least. Not a week later, no. So six months after he had been placed in foster care... (laughs) Sorry, this is so crazy. Clarence decides to call up the life insurance policy that he had taken out on Tanya a couple months before. When he calls the insurance company and he's trying to cash in on this life insurance, he gives them, of course, 
identifying information and they ask him for a social security number. He doesn't get it right. And he's talking to the representative saying, well, please forgive me. I literally put my wife to rest today and my mind is all over the place. I'm getting my numbers jumbled up. He tries nine different social security numbers before finally giving in and giving his true social security number, which identifies him as Frank Delano Floyd. So now that this, this insurance company realizes that they have a fugitive, and I'll explain that in a minute. They have some type of elite system. Trying to find a, trying to cash in on this life insurance policy. They notify the law. <laughs> they notify law enforcement, uh, law enforcement yeah. that there's this person that's trying to cash his insurance policy, but he's also a known fugitive. So he goes on the run. So that's why we have this gap where Michael is in foster care for four years. Okay. So he turns himself in. Wait, hold on. Sorry. I know. I'm going to go back to why he's a fugitive. I'll no, no, no. I'm not even oh, like, okay. it's not even that. It's that Usually when you're working in like a system, this is my understanding, like any system I've worked in, it's either the social security number is right or it's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's wrong. Try again. And this is, yeah. this is who you're actually talking about. Mm-hmm. And they're a fugitive. Like, are in they, are they in CODIS? Like, are they in I, like <laughs> a national inmate database registry that I'm not aware of? I don't know. Can I get in? Right. Like, Can I know if someone owes money or is a fugitive? That'd be great. That's crazy. They're like. Wrong, 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 but ding, 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 it's a fugitive and this is who it is. So he turns himself in for a past offense that he still owes some time on because he's a fugitive and I will, I promise I I will circle back, but not just yet. So he serves out his time and then he tries to regain Custody. Um, custody of Michael while he's in foster care. And so, but also since the foster parents are trying to do the same process, I guess it's just procedure that they do a DNA test to the person that's owning uh, or trying to gain custody of this kid. There's DNA at this point? There's DNA at this point. 1990. <sighs> that's Takes, really early on. It's really early, but it's a paternity test. So I don't know if it's easier okay. at that point. I mean, Maury was doing it, so... Yeah, but that's the mid-late 90s. <laughs> so, the DNA test came back. He was adamant that Michael was his kid. Michael was not his kid. Not the father. So, his request was denied to regain custody of Michael at this point, And the procedures... The proceedings started going forward for the adoptive... Or the foster parents to take adoption of him. Uh, but he now, because he served his time... He had the 80000 life insurance policy payout. They still paid him because the policy still paid out. They can't pay, not pay you because you're a felon or whatnot. They still paid him. So he got that money. So now he had that money in the bank that he can try and pay for custodial lawyers to try and help him regain custody. Oh, so he actually still wants custody of So Michael. he still wants custody of Michael at this point. Okay. So in 1994... When he's done serving his time and he's out of prison and whatnot, uh, Michael is in first grade and he's going to first grade at Indian Meridian. Clarence, now Frank, kind of go back and forth on these names because he's a different name at different times, but 
So Frank shows up to the school with a gun. Oh, no. And walks into the principal's office. The principal's name is James Davis. He very quietly and calmly tells the principal that he needs him to escort him to the classroom where Michael's at and needs him to call him out of the classroom that he's taking them with him. And I don't know, obviously there's no like panic button or anything that the principal can press at 1990. I don't know, but obviously he didn't. There's definitely phones. I don't know. So he did. He had to. He was at gunpoint. So the principal walked with him to the classroom where Michael was at, called him out. And then at that point, Frank at gunpoint, once again, forced the principal to get into his truck, into the principal's truck, and start driving. Frank left his truck at the school. So he started driving. He he made the principal drive into a wooded area. And the principal recalls that when they showed up to this, what seemed like a remote wooded area, there were sleeping bags that were stuffed with belongings. And by by the time he knew it, Frank had tied him up and handcuffed him to a tree and left him there, took off with his truck, and he came back twice to the principal because he had questions on how to actually run the truck. So Was it a stick shift? I, it sounds like it. So then... He's like, uh, quick question. <laughs> how do I... Real quick. Do I do the clutch first? Or? So... He's sitting there tied up to a tree, but he finally hollered enough that four hours later, the principal himself was rescued, unharmed. Obviously scared out of his fucking mind, but unharmed. Um, He had taken off with Michael. He had taken off with his truck and a manhunt ensued, but it wouldn't be till two months later that they find Frank, unfortunately, with no Michael. I know. (laughs) What is the point? And the truck was found in October, um, and it was sold at an auction. Wow. Okay. So in in November of 1994, Frank was arrested for the kidnapping of Michael and the principal. He was arrested in Louisville, Kentucky, and he wouldn't say where Michael was. At first, he had some cockamamie story that he had um, put him in some care of, of friends abroad that he was completely out of the country with some friends that he was in good hands all these things but he wouldn't say where michael was so out of the country okay yeah out sure. of the country you put a two-year-old that's not your kid out of the country and no one caught it which yeah. you're I living mean, out of a sleeping bag happen. but sure so obviously he has been he had been camping out um in this right. wooded area, and then also the foster parents that were had been in charge of Michael um, recalled that she saw him walking around in the vicinity of their house and then also walk into wooded areas around their house. So it's very likely that he was just literally drifting and living in the woods this whole time That's trying really to figure scary. out how to get Michael or try to how to get Michael in his hands. Um, really quick. Yeah. You are going to tell me why he was in prison yes. the first time, right? Okay. Yes. I'm like, this yep. is going to happen. I am right? going to get okay. back there. Yep. No, I am. Okay. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit because this is where it starts unraveling completely. So the truck that was later was found a month later. It was sold at an auction. The person Frank's truck. That the principal's truck. The oh, okay. principal's truck. truck. Okay. So that truck 
um, I mean, I work in the insurance world, so I'll tell you this. They'll pay you out for your stolen truck, and right. then if they can recover it, the insurance company will sell it again to try and make back some of that money, right? right? So they sold it at auction. It was just bought by this random mechanic that wanted to, you know, work on this truck or needed some pieces on it. I don't know. But it turns out that as he's cleaning out this newly to him vehicle, he finds a manila envelope with 97 pictures on it. Uh-oh. These are all pictures that depict women in provocative poses, clothing, naked. Um, I'm actually really relieved because I thought you were going to tell me that there are pictures of Michael. No so pictures I'm like, of Michael. Deep sigh of relief, but also like... But there's pictures of children. Oh, no. Okay. There's pictures of children in provocative or sexual poses. Um, there's also pictures of just... Um, close-in shots of sexual regions of women so there's a lot of um obscene stuff i guess yeah. for lack of a better word um in these pictures he quickly turns over to the police and then the police finally um track down you know the history of this vehicle and they realized that these were pictures that were at some point they had an overlap where Frank was in the vehicle, mm-hmm. right? So they try to figure out who are the women in these pictures, who are the kids in these pictures, but mm-hmm. they have literally no leads at this point other than trying to figure out where the hell Frank's at. Okay, because he was arrested in 1994. So time goes by, <laughs> and it wasn't until um, he was in jail that he started giving different people different stories about what he did to Michael. He told his sister that he drowned them in a bathtub. He told someone else that he threw him over a bridge. He told someone else that he buried him along uh, the side of a highway. Um, but this is when it all started. So he's no longer trying to be like, oh, he's in another country. Nope. He starts telling everything. So now I'm going to go back to the beginning, the story the origin story, if you if you like to call it that, of Frank Delano Marshall. So he was born on June 17, 1943. So he was born in Barnesville, Georgia. He was the youngest of five kids. Um, the parents were Thomas and Della Floyd. This is something that if you've heard other podcasts or other things cover this, it's worth mentioning just because it does contribute to his history and his trauma history. So... When he was one year old, his dad died when the dad was only 32 years old of cirrhosis, of kidney failure and whatnot, because he was an avid alcoholic. Cirrhosis is a liver. Or liver and kidney failure, sorry, both of them. No worries. So, because he was he was an alcoholic. So, early on, his mom was a widow with five kids now. She moved in with her parents, so they were with their grandparents, but it was too much for the grandparents to handle, so they asked Frank's mom to move out. At that point, she seeked out help from social services. They were like, hold on. Yeah. Her own parents were like, her own you parents. need to leave and you can leave the five kids here. No. Oh, she told her to take all the kids. Take too. all of them. Okay, Kicked okay. them all out. Kicked all six of them out. Sheesh. So Savages. she sought help from social services, but all that CPS could really help her and, and how they thought they could help her was you should give up your kids to a local orphanage. So she put all kids into a local orphanage called the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Hapville. And that was in 1946. And when they got there, it sounds like this children's home was not the greatest at 
rearing kids and just being nurturing and they're obviously in a shitty situation as it is but they had people who were not qualified to take care of children run the place obviously as the kids started turning 18 they kicked them out the door goodbye see ya no resources nothing so him being the youngest of the five kids was the last one to go he was 16 when he finally ran away from the place but I'll tell you a little bit about his time there. So when he was smaller, because he only entered there when he was two years old, um, apparently as he was growing up, he got bullied a lot. Apparently a lot of the kids told him that he was too girly, too feminine, and they bullied him for this. And when he was only six years old, he was raped by other kids mm. with a broomstick. Ah. Oh. So this was the kind of situation that he was living in. Also, when he was a little bit older, when he was like a younger teenager, one of the people at this uh, children's home caught him masturbating and as punishment, they put his hands in boiling water. Huh? Yeah. Oh, God. So this is not a place for... No. Any kid. It's not healthy for anyone. So obviously he did not want to stay there. All his siblings were gone at this point when he was 16. So he started um, to run away. He was fighting and stealing from, from other people. And he started breaking into houses to steal food too. Um, because he was kind of drifting at this point. Uh, one of the houses that he broke into, they caught him. And they called the children's home because he was still technically in their care. The children's home called one of his older sisters who was in North Carolina. She had a family of her own now, husband and two kids. And they offered that if she were to take them in, they would not press any charges. So she did take them in for for what it's worth. She did. Um, unfortunately, it sounds like he was a troubled teen. So mm-hmm. she kicked him out as well. She kicked him out of uh, her house and he went to Indianapolis trying to look for his mom. So at this point, he's 16, he's a little bit older. He hasn't had any contact with his mom. Um, he finds out that she is prostituting or a sex worker, and that's how she's making a living at this point. He begged his mom to help him forge papers to say that he was older so he can go to California and enlist in the army. His mom, probably seeing that, you know, this is at least the right direction like hey you're trying to do something Mm -hmm. she helped him forge these papers so he went to california to enlist they took him on it was six months before the army realized that these were forged papers and that he was only 16 so they had to kick him out at that point too i'm honestly kind of surprised they kicked him out he's already there take him in well and like (laughs) give him resources what year is this at this point this was in 56 yeah so we were actively at war at that point but like had that happened when we were they would have been like oh no no. exactly (laughs) but unfortunately they kicked him out um and this is when he started drifting again he tried to find his mom again unfortunately his mom had passed away so he had Hmm. really nowhere to go Um, in 1960, at this point, he is 17 years old. He broke into a Sears in Inglewood, California. So he made his way back into California. He was trying to steal a gun. Unknowingly, he tripped the silent alarm. So by the time that he was trying to get out, there was already police outside and a shootout ensued. He was shot in the stomach and they did take him to the hospital. They had to have emergency surgery. 
He made it, but they put him in juvie for a year plus parole afterwards. So in 1961, um, while he was in parole, he violated his parole because he went on a fishing trip to Canada with one of his buddies. So (laughs) he, after he came back, he finished his stint at juvie. He was still under 18 at this point. He returned to Hapville, which is the where the children's home was in Georgia, mm-hmm. where he had these terrible years. I don't know why you would return to probably the shittiest place in your life, but that's just how life goes sometimes, you know? Well, and it's so, you know, it goes to show how often people in general will return to their abusers. Yep. Mm-hmm. So he didn't return to the children's home, but still the same town, you know. So he did get a job when he got there at the Atlanta International Airport. I don't know exactly what he was doing. It's probably baggage handling or something like that. But while he was there, oh, okay, this is a trigger warning. This includes minors, sexual assault, um, and graphic pieces. He went to a bowling alley and he abducted a four-year-old. Mm-mm. He took her to a nearby wood wooded area. No, and he sexually assaulted her. No, um, he not only sexually assaulted her, but there was also bite marks in her general area. Oh, oh God! So he was caught. He's not a very smart criminal, and Clearly. we'll see this. Yeah. So he's convicted of kidnapping and child molestation. He's sentenced to 10 to 20 years in a Georgia state prison. How many? 10 to 20. See, that's some bullshit. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, that's some She's yeah. alive. She was alive, but, I mean, you've killed literally. A, you've a, killed a, her soul. You've killed her. Yeah. Four years old. Four years old. That's unimaginable. And not... To the extent of stuff that he did, that's just disgusting. I feel like there should be, like, some type of torture or something in there, too, but... So, when he was at the Georgia State Prison, um, they moved him to the Milledgeville State Hospital for psychiatric testing. Because, Mm -hmm. obviously, something's not all there with this guy. Um, One of the... While he was at the psychiatric hospital... They were transporting him to an eye doctor visit. While he was being transported, he escaped. After escaping, um, he went to Macon, Georgia, and he robbed a bank, the Citizens and Southern National Bank, where he made off with $6,000. He was promptly caught and convicted of this robbery. Such a pitiful amount to rob a bank for. And now that he's in prison again... Because of his rap sheet of having been convicted of sexual assault with a minor, mm-hmm. um, he gets repeatedly raped by inmates there. Okay. Okay. I mean, you're you're the bottom of the totem pole in prison. I mean, uh, it's that's it, just the I, I you know, you know. Yep. I karma is a thing. Yeah, karma is a thing. Uh huh. Tyson was just telling me about uh, something he saw that somewhere in, I think it was Russia, um, had sexually assaulted a kid, and the guy was found with three shotgun wounds to the to his back, and the coroner was like, it was suicide. 
not. But, but yeah, I mean, okay. they're like, no, oh, no, it, it was suicide. Oh, no. Oh, no. He suicided himself three times with a shotgun in the back. God. With his hand behind his back. No, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I just, you know, I... I'm a bleeding heart. I really am a bleeding heart. But then when you remember that he attacked and what he did to a four-year-old, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, if you if you can't take the heat, don't dish it out. It's awful. Okay. So in 19... So in 1968, while he's in prison for this robbery stint, mm-hmm. he makes friends with a guy named David Dial. Just keep that. It'll come right back into play. So in November of 72, so four years later, he's released into a halfway house from his prison term. And in January of 1973, he's released from the halfway house. Okay. So the 10 to 20 years never got really served for Mm -hmm. the child, the four-year-old child. Right. So he's released from the halfway house. So in on January 27th of 1973 he looked at the cl- local classifieds and he met up with a woman at a gas station asking uh, she was selling her car he forced her into her car and attempted to grope her the woman managed to escape that situation and called the police he was promptly arrested Floyd convinced that friend that he had made from prison David Dial to post his bond so he posted his bond and he promptly became a fugitive. When he didn't show up for his court date, that's when a warrant was put out for his arrest. And that's, that's the one that he was pending. He's a fugitive for with the insurance company. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. So let's see where we're at. Uh, in 1974, so now as a fugitive, he's now his alias now is Brandon Williams. He meets a woman named Sandy Chapman. They meet at a truck stop. And at the time, she was already a mother of four kids um, from two different dads. She had Suzanne, who was a daughter to Cliff Savakis, Allison, Philip, and Amy, who were all kids to her more recent husband, Dennis Brandenburg. So they dated for about a month, her and Brandon, a.k.a. Frank, um, before they got married, he also convinced her that they would be in a better place if they moved to Dallas, Texas. So immediately, he became the stepfather, got married, moved them out of a state. Um, he convinced her that it would be better for her children because she was already not doing so well financially if they moved mm-hmm. to a different state with different um, opportunities. So, unfortunately, they were still down on their luck. They were not doing great financially. I really don't know what Frank is doing for work at this time, or Brandon. Um, But the mom, Sandy, the mom of the four kids, writes a bad check while she's trying to get formula for one of the kids. Formula and diapers. She writes this bad check. I don't know why I was looked down on so harshly, but in 1974, she was sentenced to 30 days in jail. So... At this point, they're married. He's staying at home with the with the kids while she's doing her 30-day stint. When Sandy gets out, house is empty. There is no Brandon, a.k.a. Frank. Her four kids are gone. She has no way to find them. This is 1974. A couple months go by before she's she finds that 
her two youngest daughters, Allison and Amy, are in the care of an orphanage. And she is able to regain custody of them. She can't find Philip anywhere. So little baby Philip, aka Stevie, is not found anywhere. And she can't find Suzanne anywhere. The the oldest daughter. Oh my gosh. What is the point? Like, what is the point of taking off of these kids and then just dumping them? Here's where it gets crazy. Oh, this is where. Okay. This is where it gets crazy. Er. Okay. Suzanne. Huh? He takes Suzanne. How old is Suzanne? At this point, she was five years old. Okay. He takes her with her. Takes her with him. And starts changing names. He enrolls her in a school. The first time that we see another Suzanne is in 1975 when he enrolls her in a school in Oklahoma. So they were in Texas, moved her to Oklahoma. Time goes on, and this little girl becomes, she's really smart. She has a 4.0 grade average in high school. She got a full scholarship to Georgia Technical Institute oh, no. to become an aerospace engineer, and she wanted to go to work for NASA. On her senior year, she became pregnant, and she ended up giving this kid for adoption. In 1986 is when they moved to Florida, and she becomes a stripper and meets Cheryl. I knew it. I. That's why I said, how old was she mm-hmm. at this point? Because I so, didn't think that just was in case I didn't a ex- five-year-old. In case I didn't explain that correctly, or <gasps> my timeline is a little weird, he stole Sandy Chapman's oldest daughter, Suzanne. Yeah. Raised her. Kept telling people bullshit stories about how he had come to custody of this girl. He had told different stories that her parents had died, that her biological parents had been in a tragic accident. All these things kept changing her name, kept ch- changing his name. And eventually, when she went to high school, she was so bright. She definitely had a future ahead of her. Like, she was literally going for aerospace engineering. You don't, you don't just yeah. jump. You don't just happen on that. Yeah. But even when, um, and then from there, after she had this um, pregnancy and gave the kid up for adoption, they moved states again. So it's assumed that, unfortunately, this kid, while she was in high school, might have been Frank's. Yeah. So when they moved, that's when she was a stripper. She met Cheryl Ann Camesso. And she becomes Sharon. And she becomes Sharon Marshall. And then after that, she becomes Tanya. But yes, he he kidnapped, raised, married, because they did get married in New Orleans in 1989. And that's when they got married as Clarence Hughes and Tanya Hughes. So... This is this web of Then gets hit by a car. Then gets suspiciously hit by a car, hit and run. Um, I will say this. he There was red flecks of paint at the scene. Her groceries were everywhere. Um, but there, his car was a blue car that was untouched. So although it's assumed that he had something to do with it, it's not clear that he would have been the actual car. But her recovering and then suddenly passing away five days later mm-hmm. would suggest that maybe he had a hand in doing that. He he wasn't allowing visitors in, so he might have actually done something to... He didn't want her to wake up and tell somebody. Nope. 
or just move away because she was getting ready to move away with that Kevin Brown college age student that she had, you know, possibly fallen in love with and was trying to move away and give her kid a better life. So she got pregnant, gave one kid up for adoption, and then gets pregnant again with Michael. I'm no, it wasn't Michael's kid, remember? Because the DNA came back that it wasn't his kid. It wasn't Frank's kid. No. It wasn't Frank's kid. But she got pregnant. It is her kid, right? It is her kid. But okay. it wasn't Frank's kid. Got it. Yeah. So he had kidnapped a lot of people at this point. I've lost track. But he had also kidnapped from him from the school Yikes. and a kid that's not his kid. Um, and I will say this, this is something that com- keeps coming up too. when Sandy Chapman, when she tried to get help from the authorities, because Frank had literally taken her four kids, they told her there was nothing that they could do about it because they were legally married and he was technically the stepfather of all the children. This was what? also in like 1976 or something like that. So say, 74. Since when does that give you parental rights? I, I, I guess. I don't know if they just saw her as someone who was in trouble with the law and like they didn't want to help her or what the situation probably. was. But that's probably what made them say like, oh, it's fine. We're not going to do anything about it because he is technically the and stepfather. And she was a sex worker at the time, right? No, not that we know of. No, she just wrote a bad check. But didn't they meet at a truck stop? Yeah. I mean, she could have been a lot lizard. I don't know. But I would assume because they met at a truck stop that that's probably what she was doing, which would explain why... Maybe she was pumping gas. I don't know. Sure. (laughs) Um, Because, yeah, we have a lot... There's, like, what, two states that let you pump your own gas? Yeah. Or that don't let you pump your own gas? But that would be my guess, and that also might explain why the police were less inclined to help her. Very likely. I mean... unfortunate and sad it's still the mother you should help her it's not the father it's not the biological father so while he was in jail uh for the kidnapping of michael and the principal there was an a jane doe discovered in 1996 in pinellas county florida there was a landscaper that stumbled upon the remains of a body uh the remains included some breast implants because those did not deteriorate with time and some fingernails fake fingernails um and unfortunately at this time she was a jane doe when they put all the pieces together the pictures of the woman that was beat and put into different positions in the pictures that they had found in his truck were those of cheryl and micasso camesso sorry cheryl and camesso when he, when they mysteriously disappeared from mm-hmm. Florida, he had taken those pictures of her before he killed her. She was shot twice in the back of the head and left her out in a wooded area. Oh my gosh. Oh, and then also some of the pictures that were in the truck, they I, there was a thumb in one of the pictures that the there was experts that testified that the similarities were unequivocally his thumb from the picture to actual Frank's thumb in person because he was trying to say that he had no, no idea what these pictures were. So, of course, he was trying to say that. But, right. Um, and there was also f- pictures of furniture, the pictures of a boat, so just pictures of their old residence before they left Florida, mm-hmm. which a neighbor testified, like, yep, that's the house before it burnt down. This couch was there before it burnt down. This boat was theirs. So, he was although he was trying to say that there were, those were not his pictures, they definitely proved beyond the doubt that they were his mm-hmm. pictures. The first judge was trying to throw out his case and make him not stand trial because of um, incompetence. Like, 
said that he was psycho- psychologically not competent to, st- to hold trial. Um, but he fought against it, which is ironic because most people fight for it. Like, yes, please say I'm clinically insane. Like, I can't stand trial. He was like, nope, I'm perfectly fine. I have all my capacities. I am okay with withstanding trial. So they did and they convicted him to life without parole. So the narcissism got him. My gosh. Yeah, he wanted a trial so bad. And then um, the pictures of the unknown minor turns out that they were pictures from Sharon or Suzanne we know now starting from five years on oh my gosh of her being abused by him so there were abuse materials from him taking pictures of her throughout the years throughout the years That's a wild life for somebody to live. It is crazy. I'm just tired from like hearing about Me it. Me too. Like, let alone <laughs> having to do it. Oh, and in 2019, Steve, uh, Philip, aka Stevie, the youngest boy, took a DNA test. He was found. He was found. He had been adopted out. Is his mom still alive? His mom was alive at the time. Yay! Were yeah. they reunited? I think so. I hope so. Um, but they also cross-checked DNA with his and Sharon's, Tanya's, Suzanne's, <laughs> and confirmed that they were siblings. So that, Because at first people thought like, oh, this is just a media show out. Like He's trying to say he's in, you know part of this mm-hmm. case and whatnot. No, it turns out he was the long-lost child of Sandy Chapman. And he had been you know, adopted out because he was put into an adoption service by freaking Frank. I don't know if he got paid for it or he was just, I mean, not just an asshole, but he's obviously a dumb asshole and just put the little kid into, into adoption. This guy confuses me more than Kanye's Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) He's all over the place. And this is a criminal history that spans like 35, 40 years. Yeah. That's exhausting. And at, it just recently he when he was interviewed by detectives he half asked confessed to what he did to michael and he said that he shot him the day after he kidnapped him from the school from the elementary school and dumped his body along a highway see and it's like why let why someone else that? raise him like right. why do you need to kidnap him and take him out you literally wanted nothing to do with him let someone else raise him so they, they it's been 4 years out. let the kid go oh, gosh yeah right he had been, been more him for than four that years. at that point because he was in first grade. Mm-hmm. So it had been what, six, seven years? Something like that. Yeah, let it go. And I mean, at that point, um, the detectives and the, you know, they had two day searches up and down the highway. They couldn't find anything. Unfortunately, they surmised that because of his size, um, he'd been eaten by. He'd been eaten by wild hogs in that area. Yeah. And that's just the assumption because he has so many stories about what he did that he... Hard to know even what's what. Right. So we don't even know if he just sent him on a wild goose chase along the highway. I'm like imagining you researching this case (sighs) and like also like what listening, like what it would be like for the detectives where they're like, oh my God, turn the pieces together. We're going where? This is a lot of OT to clock in to try (laughs) to figure this out. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I mean, he, all of his aliases all together, let me go through them. It's Brandon Cleo Williams, Warren Judson Marshall, Clarence Marcus Hughes, Trunjan Davis, Preston Morgan, Kingfish Floyd. 
Some of these names are tragic. Yeah. So Kingfish. Isn't that crazy though? It just goes all over the place, but it I mean, very early on he was experiencing trauma himself and being sexually assaulted himself. But then I, he went grew that up is, and did that to other people. I feel bad about that, but But then, then he did that to a four year old. Yeah, I don't feel bad once he turns seventeen and is doing what he's doing. And he kidnapped Suzanne and not only kidnapped obviously her, did the but was, same thing. obviously was doing the same things to her. Long term. Right. And, the and fact destroyed that, her future. And the fact that she was, you know, in a, at an age where she could have asked for help, it was probably a situation where this is her normal. Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Um, I mean, because Can he you would imagine? sit at the strip clubs outside in the car because he literally had no other job. He had nothing else to do. So he would just sit outside in the car waiting for her. And taking and, her money. And co-workers said that she was afraid when it was like a slow night or when the slow night was ending. She was like afraid and like f- would have full on panic attacks because she knew that she wouldn't have enough money to, you know, appease him. He was him. Like pimping her. He was pimping her. So he was... He kidnapped her. Can you imagine? The list goes on Like, and on. she goes through all of that trauma, and she's still somebody that could be uh, a NASA, NASA engineer. engineer. Mm-hmm. Can you even imagine what she would be capable of? Yeah. Yeah. She had the fucking brains for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's there's a, there's, a, there's a book on this, too, called A Beautiful Child. Um, literally, the... It, Someone wrote a book on on this whole thing, and it just goes into more, you know, first account details and whatnot. But it's uh, it's really interesting. It's just um, how wide of a span it is, and just how intricate it is, and how many times he got away with things. And it's not like oh, it just progressively got worse. They were always the worst situation imaginable. Um, you know, starting off with. The four-year-old, like that's that's serious crime, and he probably should have gotten more time for that. I agree. Yeah, if he'd been given life, none of this would have been an issue. But at the same time, you know that that prison or that judge decided to put him into a psychiatric hospital, and that's where he had his way to get out to escape. If he if he wouldn't have had the even opportunity to escape from such a serious crime, from a punishment from you know something so serious. Then maybe none of this... I mean, there's a whole lot of maybes, but, you know, who knows the what-ifs on that. But it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So he's, of course, suspected of the murder, homicide of Sharon, a.k.a. Suzanne, Tanya. um, Suspected of the murder for Cheryl Ann Camesso, um, or he was convicted for that one. Um, He's still in jail. He's 73. He's sitting in prison right now. And Michael. Like, nobody's ever recovered Michael. And no one's ever recovered Michael. Yep. That's it. That's the case of... Wait. Sharon Sharon Marshall, um, or the case of Frank Delano. And I'll just leave it without a last name because the last name keeps changing, but we know his birth, first and middle, is Frank Delano. And... Wow. Yeah. That's quite the train ride. Yeah. And he was named after Roosevelt. I can't believe that you put that together in just a couple days. Yep. Stupid. Stupid. 
Yeah, I had a different case prepared, but uh, another popular podcast, uh, as I was researching, the notification came up that they were covering the same case. I was like, oh, shit. Like, I can't do the same case. I did it. I had to redo it all. So that was a long, fun one to research. There's a lot of research out there for it. Um, Definitely put that on murder lovers. I don't know if you guys are into that stuff like I am. Like, there is court documents that I like reading because it's matter-of-fact type of things. You know, it's not embellished by the media or anything. Like, here's the evidence. Here's what's found. Here's what's being presented. So I'll post the links to that just because if you guys like and, you know, enjoy reading that as much as I do, um, you know, just you just get this kind of like inside view of of the system. And now that you know the case, you would be able to read along with it. So I'll post this on the Murder Lovers page on Facebook. Cool. Patreons. We have new Patreons this week. Woohoo! So first and foremost, we have Dan Yell in the Murder Lovers Club. Thank you. And Cece joining the Diet Coke Fund. Hey, Cece. Thank you so much. We Hi appreciate guys. you guys. Thank and you. And if you would like to join our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Podcast. It's also linked in all of the show notes and linked in our social media bios. So you can find it in all of those locations. Yeah. And remember, if you're a Patreon, you can send us suggestions for any case that you want to see covered and it shoots up to the top of the list. All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.